And what we did last week is we kind of approached it from the attitude of Paul as he wrote it. We looked at the difficulties and the struggles in Paul's life and how Paul was handling those difficulties and struggles. This week, what I'd like to do is look more closely at the text itself. So as, as we look at it and, and we, we rehash just a little bit to make sure we're in the flow of this lesson, I want to tell you, Paul could very easily have chosen to wash his hands of the Corinthian church. These people were trouble. They weren't nice to him. They mistreated him. They mocked him. They insulted him. They, they, um, they, they, they were into this comparison thing of Paul versus everybody else. They made, they made jokes about how short he was. They, they, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it just, Paul very easily could have washed his hands, but he didn't. He saw something worth fighting for. And this was at a time, this is a slide from last week. This is at a time where everything in Paul's life seemed to be falling apart. It was a really difficult struggle in his life. It was a struggle physically. It was a struggle socially. It was a struggle in his ministry. It was a struggle financially. It was a struggle to his health. It was a struggle to his safety. It was a struggle in all aspects of his life except for one. The Lord Jesus had died for his sins and of that he was convicted that God sat on his throne and would make things right one day. Other than that, it was a mess. We looked at it in a little more detail and we talked about Corinth and we need to know as we read this letter today or as we go through the text of 2 Corinthians... Paul had spent 18 months in Corinth on that second missionary trip. He'd written them a letter, scholars call Corinthians A, that we don't have anymore. They had written back to Paul. Paul had taken their letter while he was in Ephesus and wrote Corinthians B, which we also call 1 Corinthians. That's the correspondence we've got in the Bible. And then Paul sends Timothy and he sends Erastus, but that's all to no avail. Paul makes his own painful visit to Corinth. It's a short visit. We're not told about it in Acts. We pick up on it by reading Paul's correspondence to the Corinthians. But the visit was really difficult. It was a stressful visit for Paul. So Paul, while all of that's going on in his relationship with the Corinthians, Paul's in Ephesus where he's fighting with beasts either truly animals or he's uh, uh, fighting with religious persecution there. There is this no little disturbance that happens where basically Paul's co-ministers are arrested and they're taken in front of, of the crowd in the amphitheater. And it's all because of Paul and the impact that God is having through Paul's ministry. Paul says it got to a point where he was burdened beyond his strength and he was despairing of life. And that's what I mean when I say his world's falling apart while he's trying to deal with all of these Corinthian problems. It's the, it's the situation I told you last week. When your world is falling apart, you would at least hope that your friends are there to hold you up. 
instead of be the extra burden. But they were, and, and Paul dealt with this. Now, Paul's in Ephesus. Corinth is a two-day sail away from Ephesus. So Paul can make that two-day journey, which he made, we know. But by the same token, Paul's thinking he's leaving Ephesus. He's going to go to Corinth. And that's where he'll go, and he'll try and straighten this stuff out himself. He was going to go to Corinth on his way north to Macedonia. Macedonia, you'll recall, is where the church was in Philippi. It's the Philippian church. The church in Thessalonica was uh, in Macedonia into Thessalonia, uh, another little area, but basically up in that same general region. Paul had churches in that area that brought him joy. He was headed there to do more work there and had planned on going through Corinth. But instead of going through Corinth, Paul goes straight to Macedonia by the land route, by and large, goes up to what's modern Constantinople almost, Troas. And Paul from Troas goes into Macedonia. Now, we've got this detail, but when I say Paul saw in Corinth something worth fighting for instead of washing his hands, you need to remember Paul's writing this letter because he's fighting for the Corinthians. He's fighting not just simply for their soul, but he's fighting for their life. Not not uh, living, breathing life, but true life. Abundant life. Life in the sun. Maturity. So this is what Paul's fighting for. And Paul goes there, uh, I mean, Paul goes on the road for this fight. While he's on the road, he's still getting messages back about how he's being criticized and how he's being minimized. And you aggravate all of that by this thorn in the flesh that Paul has that we don't know what is. And in the midst of all of that, Paul fights for the Corinthians. And here we start the story. So Paul begins in 2 Corinthians. And what I'm going to do is go through the text. We'll look at a couple of passages together. But I'm going to basically summarize the text to you. So what you get in this class today is a summary of 2 Corinthians from the beginning to the end. And we're just going to do it together. So I'll speak a little bit first person as Paul writes, but I'll also speak third person as I comment on it. Fair? Okay. So Paul starts out and he writes to the Corinthians and he says, Listen, I know you know I've been having all of these problems. And I hope you know how horrible life has been from an earthly perspective. But that's okay, because when I suffer, I'm suffering so that I can teach you how to walk through suffering. I'm suffering because God's called me into it, because it's important to the ministry of the gospel. And that's really all I care about. So here I am, and I'm writing to you again, and oh, by the way, would you mind praying for me? Because I do pray for you. Maybe some of my suffering is so that you'll be called to prayer for me instead of criticism of me. And if so, so be it. Now, I know you know that I was planning on coming to see you on my way to Macedonia. And I know you now realize as you get this letter, I didn't. 
So you might think that I'm a flip-flopper. That I vacillate. That I say yes, yes, when it seems convenient. But then I change my mind and it's no, no. And I've just got the mind of man that one day is left and the next day is right. He says, assured, please, be assured that that's not true. That I do seek God out before I make these plans. And before I say I'm going to do something, I seek God. But things change that caused me to decide not to come to see you. I decided not to come see you even though I couldn't get you off my mind. It's not that I forgot about you. It's not that I quit caring about you. I've been troubled. I've been eaten up inside. I've been extremely bothered. I can't stop gnawing on this bone. But you remember that visit I made to you? That short one? That painful one? I decided not to come back to you because... If I came back to you, I wouldn't be the aroma of Christ I need to be. I decided if I came back to you, it would be more painful than I thought. I decided if I came back to you, it would, it would, uh, it would cause you more pain. You see, what matters in this world is how we conduct ourselves. And how we live for God's glory. And this idea of being an aroma of Christ. Christ leads us in a procession. I'm not just walking this path. I'm not just walking where I want to go. I don't wake up in the morning and say, Gee, where do I want to go today? Life's an open road begging for the gospel. Christ leads me in a procession. He leads all of us in a procession. You may not realize it, but He leads you in a procession too. He's got plans for you. And the procession leaves this aroma. It leaves the fragrance of Christ. It's like you're the incense. How many of you drink coffee? Hate the stuff. I absolutely hate the stuff. But I love the smell. I love the smell for two reasons. I grew up, my dad had coffee in the morning, and the smell reminds me of the comforts of home. Number two, my beautiful wife, she loves coffee. First thing she does in the morning that I know of is make coffee. And so it reminds me of the beauty of my wife. That she is awake and alive and in the same house with me. And I rejoice at the smell of coffee. Don't want to taste it. I don't like it. But that smell, that aroma. Isn't it interesting how smells work? I love the way Paul draws upon all of our senses to get us involved in the Lord. I love the way Paul sees us, not as singular dimensional. Paul's not just worried about what you're thinking. Not just physical, what you're doing. But Paul recognizes your eyes exist, your nose exists, your ears exist, your tastes exist. Everything you have exists because God made it, uses it for His glory, and Paul will use it to help explain the glory of Jesus. 
So he says that that aroma of Christ is what we need to be. He says, so I'm going in Christ's procession. I want to be his aroma. And oh, by the way, that's why I'm not charging you for the gospel. I refuse to peddle the gospel. The cross of Christ is not for sale. This is not about me trying to make some money. This is not about me trying to, to, to cushion my pillow. I care about you because Jesus cared enough about you to die for you. I do what I do because God did what God did. And it reached out and, and, and the love of Christ touched me and changed who I am. So I want to touch you. I want to change who you are. But I'm not doing it because of anything I get out of it. I'm doing it for the glory of the Lord. He says, you, you know... In the Old Testament, we read about this, this covenant that was etched on stone, the letter of the law that brought death because nobody could follow it. I'm reminded, I'll digress for a moment here. I'm reminded of a good brother of mine that was in the process of coming to know the Lord. And I was urging him to read the Gospel of John. I've told you a little bit about him in this story. And he read the Gospel of John over and over and over. And then finally, after about three or four weeks of reading it every day, he read the Gospel of Matthew just to change up. And he called me on the phone while I'm getting out of a taxi, about to get into an elevator, running late to give a speech in New York City. So I've got like no time at all. I see it's him calling. Oh, what do I do? I've got, I mean, I'm running late. This, this, i got to get up there. I'm going to lose reception in the elevator. But I don't want to just ignore him. Hey, brother, uh, what's, what's up? I've got like one minute, truly, 60 seconds. It's yours. Go. He says, well, I've read John for the last month every day, and I decided to read something different, so I read the Gospel of Matthew, and now I'm scared. I said, what do you mean? He says, I'm going to hell. <laughs> and I said, what? He said, look, before I couldn't commit adultery. Now I can't look at a woman with lust. Before I couldn't kill. Now I can't hate. He says, I'm going to hell. What should I do? Well, I'm down to 15 seconds. Put down Matthew, go back, read John. I'll call you after my speech. (laughs) You know, the, 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 the law is not something that's going to give life to anybody. Paul says, but I'm preaching a new covenant here, one that's not written on stone, one that's written by the Spirit of God upon your heart. I'm talking about a covenant that's a covenant of life, that's a covenant of glory, not a covenant of death. Look what Paul says about this in 2 Corinthians 3, 7 through 18. Let's take just a moment, because the words are really good. Paul says, Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory, the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. 
Let's pause for a moment. Do you remember the story in the Old Testament? Moses is up on the mountain. He gets the covenants. He gets the Ten Commandments. He gets them written on stone. But his presence before the Lord has caused his face to shine so brightly that the Israelites can't behold it. And they have to put a veil over Moses' face because he's radiating some brightness from the emanation of being in the presence of holy God. Paul says, if that, if those Ten Commandments that just bring death had so much glory with them that the Israelites couldn't graze at Moses' face, won't the ministry of the Spirit that's bringing life and glory, won't it have even more glory If there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. You think you're the aroma of Christ, you are. But do you realize how we should radiate and reflect the beauty of the glory of the life that we have that this world knows nothing about except as they see it in us? In this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. If what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. See, the the law was even temporary. But what God writes in our hearts is eternal life. The glory that we have from this new covenant in Jesus is one that lasts forever. We have... I am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that we do not understand the incredible ways that God would like to use us. Because we get so distracted in our treadmill life that we forget that he wants, through his spirit, to not only transform us, but use us to transform the world by how we treat others. By what we do. You look at the fruit of this spirit. That Paul wrote to the Galatians about. Love. Joy. Peace. Patience. Kindness. Gentleness. Self-control. Faithfulness. These fruits are things that affect the way we treat others. It will show the world. That we're not the same. Not because we're special, but because we're radiating and reflecting the glory of the one who is special. And so that's what Paul says. So we have such a hope. And as a result, we're very bold. Not like Moses. Moses had to put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, the temporary law. But their minds were hardened. And now when they read the Old Covenant, they still have a veil. They still don't understand what it was because only through Christ is it taken away. But we, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Absolute favorite verses in the Bible. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another.
And that's my prayer. Not just for me, that's my prayer for all of us. That we might behold the glory of the Lord. And in the process, experience that transformation as God changes us little by little every day to reflect that image. And Paul says, this is what your life is like now. Paul says, as a result, I live without walls. No pretense here. What you see is what you get. I'm not going to pretend to be something I'm not. I'm not going to use cunning manipulation to try and make you do what I want you to do. I'm not going to be a trickster. I'm not going to tell you the little half-truth so that I can get you, imply you, or manipulate you into where I'd like you to be and what I'd like you to do. No games. I'm playing it straight. This is who I am. And you might look at me, Paul says, and others of you have looked at me and make fun of who I am. Oh, Paul's a little weakling. Oh, Paul's short. Oh, Paul's bald. Oh, Paul's blind. Oh, Paul's this. Oh, Paul's that. If he was really living in the glory of God, do you think he'd be such a shambles of a man? And Paul says, you bet. The treasure I have, the treasure that's God, is in a busted up clay jar. But do you know why I'm a busted up clay jar? So that you can behold the glory of God. Because you're not going to be swayed by me. When I was um, a younger lawyer, younger trial lawyer. I've been doing it almost 30 years. Next year will be 30 years. The first five or six, maybe ten years I had. I looked like a kid. I was in my 20s, but I looked like I was 13 years old. The problem is, is, as mom has told me many times, I didn't talk for how many years, mom? Two years. And she said, and once I started talking, I haven't shut up since. And so, I, I, glib was easy for me as a young lawyer. And I've got to tell you, I lost cases where the jurors would come up to me afterwards and say, you just seem a little too slick. You're just too slick of a lawyer. Oh, and it hurt. I said, well, what would you want me to do, stutter? I mean, I I don't understand. And they said, well, you know, you just, we're not sure if you were right or if you just sounded right. And I nearly quit being a lawyer when that happened the third time. I thought, well, this is no good. Paul did not have that problem. Paul had the conviction and the power of the gospel. And Paul says the fact that I'm persuading you in spite of who I am ought to communicate to you how powerful this gospel message is. Because it's not coming out of the slick salesman. 
It's coming out of a busted clay jar. But it's a powerful and it's a pure message of God. So, what happens? Well, I live in this busted clay jar, but I'm being transformed into the image of His Son, and so are you. And this life is one that starts here, but this life is one that's already going on into eternity. And I'd a whole lot rather be investing in things that last forever than I would this clay jar. Paul wasn't looking for liposuction so that he'd have a little more svelte figure. Paul's concern was not how he looked, but was he following God's will in his life? And that's what Paul wanted. Paul says, the whole reason I'm doing this, I, that the carrot for me, I am not motivated by some selfish carrot. I'm motivated by the cross. And I'm motivated by you. I'm motivated by the love of Christ. And I'm motivated by you. In fact, there's a passage in 1 Corinthians 5. We're going to digress for just a moment and have a Greek grammar lesson. When's the last time y'all had Greek grammar? Anybody today? Okay, good. Then we're safe. Uh, Everybody needs a little Greek grammar every day. All right? So... This is your passage for the day for Greek grammar class because we're doing good schedule-wise, time-wise. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. Look at this passage. For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. So here's your Greek lesson. The love, make sure I'm on the screen, whoops, of... Christ. Now, that can mean a number of different things in English, and it can in Greek. It's a construction in the Greek called the genitive case. Words in the Greek have signs or labels that they wear on them that tell you, I'm a subject, or I'm a direct object, or something like that. They don't do it by word order in a sentence like we do. Okay? They wear signs. So this is two Greek words, and this Greek word of Christ is wearing the sign that's called a genitive sign. It's a genitive case ending. And the genitive can mean a number of things, which is why we translate it with of or from. And that's the way it's generally translated. So, for example, let's use some English in this. Have I told you about my love... Of chocolate chip cookies. It's really tough to experience because I have this weirdo diet stuff. So you got to make them real funky. But I have a great love of chocolate chip cookies. Who in here has a love of chocolate chip cookies? Okay, you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about my love for chocolate chip cookies. Now, does Paul mean that when he says the love of Christ controls us? Does he mean that I love Christ so much that it controls who I am and what I do? No. He could mean that. I mean, grammatically, but it's not that way. It's talking about the love that comes from Christ. The love of a mother for her newborn child. 
the love of a mother for her newborn child. It's not the love of that newborn child when you speak of a mother's love. It's the love the mother has. You with me? Okay. When Christ speaks of the love of, I mean, when Paul speaks of the love of Christ, and he does it in multiple times in his writings, he always uses it the same way. It's always a reference to Christ's love for us. So now when he says, that's your Greek lesson. So now when Paul says, the love of Christ controls us, he means the love that Jesus has for us controls us. Why? Because we've concluded that one has died for all. Jesus died for us, so all have died. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake, him who for their sake died and was raised. So he's saying it's Christ's love for us that controls us. And by the way, this permeates the New Testament. Why do we love Jesus? Because he first loved me, right? We love him because he loved us first. It's the love of Christ that controls us. It's and, and now, where's our room for boasting? Gone. We are who we are because of who Jesus is. Paul says he's no different. As a result, Paul says, if we go back to the PowerPoint, he says, I have gladly endured troubles, hardship. There. Hardship, distresses. I have beatings, imprisonments, riots, hard work, sleepless nights, hunger, gladly. Because you look at the suffering Christ did for me, and if I'm suffering while I'm following the will of God, that's like this big old stamp on me that says God's using me. The same way. By, 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 by using what I have to spend for his kingdom. And Paul says, you can't ask for anything better than that. Now, if we're reading Paul's letter carefully, even in the English, but especially in the Greek, you'll notice a bit of a shift starting in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 11. And it's, we're, we're getting out of, out of the class for a moment, out of the flow of the text for a moment, for an important textual comment. Um, some scholars believe that because Paul wrote multiple letters to the Corinthians, that some later editor took those multiple letters, Corinthians A, B, C, D, and combined them into the two letters we've got now. And so there's a lot of scholastic writings that say, ah, here's a place where someone inserted from another one of Paul's letters. And I, I, I mean, I don't have any problem with that. Maybe that's what happened. I don't think it did. I, I go to Occam's Razor quite often in my life. That's the principle, you'll recall, that the simpler explanation is generally the right explanation. Paul wrote this on the road. It's so apparent when you read the letter that he wrote it on the road. In chapter 7, Titus comes back. And he may have come back here in chapter 6. But, but you know, Paul would pick it up and put it down. And he would pick it up and put it down. And this is not a letter that he just dictated flow of thought one time. This is a letter that, ref that, that he worked on for weeks, months, maybe. 
And so it's not surprising to me that we see this kind of shift. But, uh, you know, the, the church through the Holy Spirit has seen fit to secure this for us through the ages and, and did it without telling us anything about how it was, uh, whether or not it was multiple letters. I just tend to read it at face value. And it makes a lot of sense to me. But regardless, let's get back into it. So now there's a little bit of a shift in his tone of voice, though. And Paul starts talking to him and he says, listen, let me talk to you about some practical stuff. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. You know, the picture's funny. But there is, um, it's based on the, uh, um, the passage in the law in the Old Testament that says you don't yoke together an, uh, uh, an ox and uh, a donkey. Now, the King James doesn't use the word donkey. And I remember a gentleman named Burton Kaufman who received an Alumni of the Year Award at Abilene Christian one year. And he was being honored up on stage with a number of different people receiving honors. And this man had written a commentary on every book in the Bible. Kaufman's commentaries. This man was in his 80s. He commanded a deep voice. And he could say things no one else could ever get away with saying. So in front of the thousands who were there to honor him and the others, but especially him, in his 85th year or whatever it was, he stood up there and he said, the King James says you should not yoke an ox with an... Yeah. And he says, which makes me feel really weird up here with all these oxen. (laughs) Only Burton Kaufman could get away with such a crass thing. But the idea wasn't so much what Burton had in mind, but Paul does take it to several different levels. He says, you're the temple of God. What's the temple of God going to do joined with the temple of an idol? So you don't mix your religion with that of everybody else's. You don't mix your business dealings with that of everybody else's. Heavens, you don't mix your marriage. Young kids. Who in here is young? And by young, I mean under the age of 52. No. Um, (laughs) We got any single young kids in here. I'd love you to be in your life groups. But if you're in here, we've got a few. Blake, some others. Listen to me. Don't ever marry someone who's not a Christian. You don't unequally yoke. Just doesn't work. And if you're not going to marry him who's not a Christian, why would you ever date him? Okay, just freebie you get in Sunday school. All right, now, life group, excuse me. You just don't do it. I mean, doesn't make, yeah, you have different priorities. You have different goals. You have different purposes in life. One's going to be pulling this way. One's going to be pulling that way. You just don't do it. Now, Paul says, Titus has just shown up in Macedonia. He was going to try and get to me in Troas. In fact, I was real depressed when he wasn't in Troas. I was afraid y'all had killed him. Didn't say that, but he was worried. He says, but he has shown up now, and he's shown up here in Macedonia, and he's brought me the great news. That y'all and I are moving back together. There's some harmony. 
And it's got me really excited. And listen, please understand, Paul says, I forgive the people who've been abusive to me there. And the people who've been mocking me and the people who've been making fun of me. As long as they're apologetic, I forgive them. He says, in fact, if you forgive them, I'll forgive them. And because I forgive them, you forgive them. You shouldn't be holding anything against them. God forgives us all. Now, having said that, I do plan on coming back. Paul says, now I need to talk to you about something else. I need to talk to you about money, 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 money. He says, you had already said that y'all were going to be setting aside money for the church in Jerusalem because the famine relief and, and the problems there. And that's fantastic. Paul says, the Macedonians are doing the same thing. Now, there's a difference, though. The Macedonians are poor. You guys got a lot of money in Corinth. You need to know the Macedonians are giving out of their poverty. They're giving beyond their means. And you need to do the same. Paul says, understand, I'm not taking a dime of this money. This is not for ministry. This is for love and support of the church in need. And so you need to give generously. And you need to be doing it regularly. You need to be setting aside week by week. Because otherwise, I'm afraid when, when we come to get the money, you're going to all of a sudden say, oh, already? And you're not going to have any. So be setting aside your money. And as you do it, I want you to think of two things. I want you to think, number one, Jesus Christ had all the riches that a God could have. All the riches of heaven. You know, the psalm that says the cattle of a thousand or the, the, the thousand, thousand hills belong to the Lord. Yeah, he made them. Jesus has all of the riches of heaven. And he, Jesus, became poor so that he could make you rich. Paul will later write it to the Philippians and say uh, that, that Christ Jesus existed in the form of God, but regarded equality with God, not something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, and then humbled himself to man to the point of death. Jesus is willing to do all of that out of his richness to become poor, to give us this life that we have for eternity. So you have that same attitude and you give the same way. He said, by the same token, also know that whatever you sow, you're going to reap. And, and to those who are faithful with what God's given them and, and they, they use it faithfully to God's service, God will add to it. You know, one of the hardest things my friends who are preachers have to do is preach on money. Because anytime a preacher is preaching on money, it sounds like they're trying to build the church. I don't work here. I don't get paid a dime from here. This is not about anything I get. So I, of all people, 
have an ability to say to you that nobody else here on staff can. I promise you that the Bible is true on this point and everything else. Just as assuredly as Jesus died for you, God calls us to recognize that he is the sustainer of life, that he is the giver of life, that he has given us these resources, whatever your resources are. And don't get me wrong. This isn't a plea for give your money to the church. This isn't a plea for give 10% to the Lord. I want you to give 100% to the Lord. And it's not just your money. I want you to tithe your time. I want you to tithe your energy. I want you to tithe your talents. I want you to recognize, and I want to recognize, that everything we have is from the Lord, and it's all for the good of His kingdom, which is coming, and which we already live in, and we're heralding in the kingdom of God. And we can show that to people. And we can show it by the way we treat them, but we can also show them by the way we treat ourselves and the things we have control over. And so I just urge you to put God to the test. If I had time, I'd call Dale Hearn up here and let Dale Hearn start telling stories of how many people, Dale, could could you talk for five hours of people who have decided to put God to the test and he's never failed them. Stand up if I'm, what I'm saying is true, so everybody knows who, exactly who you are. Amen. Dale Hearn's a financial planner who helps so many people out of holes. He's taught Dave Ramsey's course here. He's done. Uh, 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 he he has seen this firsthand for decades, and truly could go on for hours. Okay, that's enough of that. Now Paul says, "Hey, by the way." Just in case anybody out there is still backbiting me, I'm coming there. And when I come, these people who claim to be like super apostles. Oh, yeah, Paul's an apostle. I'm a super apostle. I'm like the gospel message plus good looks. (laughs) Paul says in Lubbock speak, you better be careful. Because when I come, I got some kung fu moves these people have never seen. <laughs> I had trouble finding a Bruce Lee picture with a shirt on. I couldn't quite bring myself. To, I wanted the one where he's going, Aah! you know, but he's like got the six pack and all. And that's just not Paul. So, <laughs> so. And then I got some kung fu, baby. You don't want me. To, you don't want what I got. And be real careful with these people who hype themselves. Because someone patting themselves on the back is not always a cool thing. Remember, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And I may not be a super apostle, but I got a pretty good CV. You can look at my resume. You can see what's on there. Now, the motivation for you guys is that font is so small. I want to make you get on the internet and look at it. Because I actually filled out Paul's CV, sort of. Um, so he, he, he said, oh, uh, uh, my CV. He says, look what I did. We got a second. Second Corinthians 21, I mean 11, 
21 through 29. Look at this CV. He says, whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. You're sitting there saying, that's redundant, Paul. No, it's not. Hebrew means he could trace his Hebrew lineage back. Child of Abraham, so am I. Servants of Christ, I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews, 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and exposed. And apart from other things... There's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who's made to fall and I'm not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. And he goes on to talk about it. Paul says, I got, you know, here's the bottom line. I'm telling you, Paul is one of the most compelling reasons to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ resurrected that there is. You don't trade in a wonderful, cushy, cushy, good life as a leading citizen of Jerusalem from a leading family that's got enough money to live in Tarsus and raise their kids at the school of Gamaliel. You don't throw all of that away when you're on the course of the golden boy who deals with the high priest and does his biddings and is given authority to to arrest Christians and to deal with discipline among the Jews. You don't throw all of that away when you're doing it out of a zeal unless you had something that changed your life. And not for a day and not for a week and not for a month changed your life until you gave your life decades later. Looking for the glory of the Lord. In fact, he says, hey, add to my CV. I even got to visit heaven. Sandy, we'll talk about that one time. He says, I I caught up in the third heaven. I can't even describe to you what I saw. I've got this thorn in the flesh. I've healed people by the power of Jesus. I, 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 but I've got a thorn in the flesh I can't get rid of. I've prayed three times and all God says is, is, well, my grace is sufficient for you. So it is. And I'll live with that because this is the glory of God. And oh, did I mention again that I'm still coming to see you guys? Because I am. So get your house in order and let's make it a wonderful reunion and not a time where I got to uncork my Kung Fu. And with that, Paul closes the letter. Points for home. 
I can't leave this lesson without this point. We all with unveiled face. Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This is the whole gospel message to me. An unveiled face means that we see Jesus and what he did for the truth of what it is. The glory in life that he puts on our hearts and writes in our lives. And we behold this glory of the Lord. And as a result, we are transformed. We take on a greater reflection of his image. Transformed more by more by more. Little by little every day. Little by little in every way. Jesus is changing me. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Point for home too. Remember this, whosoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whosoever sows generously will also reap generously. Amen. Third point for home. Paul ends the letter with this. He says, aim for perfection. Listen to my appeal. Be of one mind. And live in shalom. Live in peace. Be of one mind and live in peace. There is a peace that passes all understanding that guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And it comes from that perfection of Jesus. Which is our aim, though we won't get there in this life. Would you let me pray over you and with you? Lord, I ask you to bless the hearers of this message. I ask you to bless us all. Transform who we are. Give us a greater vision of the glory of the Lord. Help us to behold the Lord Jesus reigning. Resurrected. And coming again. And Lord... May, every, may that capture every one of our thoughts and our actions and our plans, our reactions. And Father, where we're corrupted with this old nature, would you continue to sand off those rough edges? Would you continue to shape and mold us into the image of your Son? We pray through Jesus, our Lord. Amen. 